Chapter Twenty of the Ivory Child by H. Rider Haggard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty. Alan weeps. On they came slowly and steadily, preceded by a cloud of skirmishers, a thousand or more of these who kept as open an order as the narrow ground would allow, and carried each of them a bundle of throwing spears arranged in loops or sockets at the back of the shield. When these men were about a hundred yards away, we opened fire and killed a great number of them, also some of the marshalled troops behind. But this did not stop them in the least, for what could fifty rifles do against a horde of brave barbarians whom, it seemed, had no fear of death? Presently their spears were falling among us, and a few casualties began to occur, not many because of the protect wall, but still some. Again and again we loaded and fired, sweeping away those in front of us, but always others came to take their places. Finally, at some word of command, these light skirmishers vanished, except those who were dead or wounded, taking shelter behind the advancing regiments, which were now within fifty yards of us. Then, after a momentary pause, another command was shouted out, and the first regiment charged in three solid ranks— we fired a volley point-blank into them, and, as it was hopeless for fifty men to withstand such an onslaught, bolted during the temporary confusion that ensued, taking refuge, as it had been arranged that we should do, at a point of vantage further down the line of fortifications, whence we maintained our galling fire. Now it was that the main body of the White Kender came into action under the leadership of Ragnall and Harut. The enemy scrambled over the first wall, which we had just vacated, to find themselves in a network of other walls held by our spearmen in a narrow place where numbers gave no great advantage. Here the fighting was terrible, and the loss of the attackers great, for always as they carried one entrenchment they found another a few yards in front of them, out of which the defenders could only be driven at much cost life. Two hours or more the battle went on thus. In spite of the desperate resistance which we offered, the multitude of the Black Kender, who I must say fought magnificently, stormed wall after wall, leaving hundreds of dead and wounded to mark their difficult progress. Meanwhile I and my riflemen rained bullets on them from certain positions which we had selected beforehand, until at length our ammunition began to run low. At half-past eight in the morning we were driven back over the open ground to our last entrenchment, a very strong one just outside of the eastern gate of the temple, which, it will be remembered, was set in a tunnel pierced through the natural lava rock. Thrice did the black kender come on, and thrice we beat them off, till the ditch in front of the wall was almost full of fallen. As fast as they climbed onto the top of it, the white kender thrust them through with their long spears, or we shot them with our rifles, the nature of the ground being such that only a direct frontal attack was possible. In the end they drew back sullenly, having, as we hoped, given up the assault. As it turned out, this was not so. They were only resting and waiting for the arrival of their reserve. It came up shouting and singing a war-song, two thousand strong or more, and presently once more they charged like a flood of water. We beat them back. They reformed and charged a second time, and we beat them back. Then they took another counsel. 
standing among the dead and dying at the base of the wall which was built of loose stones and earth where we could not easily get at them because of the showers of spears which were rained at any one who showed himself they began to undermine it levering out the bottom stones with stakes and battering them with poles in five minutes a breach appeared through which they poured tumultuously it was hopeless to withstand that onslaught for so vast a number fighting desperately we were driven down the tunnel and through the doors that were opened to us into the first court of the temple by furious efforts we managed to close these doors and block them with stones and earth but this did not avail us long for bringing brushwood and dry grass they built a fire against them that soon caught the thick cedar wood of which they were made while they burned we consulted together further retreat seemed impossible since the second court of the temple save for a narrow passage was filled with corn which allowed no room for fighting while behind it were gathered all the women and children more than two thousand of them here or nowhere we must make our stand and conquer or die up to this time compared with what we had inflicted upon the black kenda of whom a couple of thousand or more had fallen our loss was comparatively slight say two hundred killed and as many more wounded most of such of the latter as could not walk we had managed to carry into the first court of the temple laying them close against the cloister walls whence they watched us in a grisly ring this left us about sixteen hundred able-bodied men or many more than we could employ with effect in that narrow place therefore we determined to act upon a plan which we had already designed in case such an emergency as ours should arise about three hundred and fifty of the best men were to remain to defend the temple till all were slain the rest to the number of over a thousand were to withdraw through the second court and the gates beyond to the camp of the women and children these they were to conduct by secret paths that were known to them to where the camels were crawled and mounting as many as possible of them on the camels to fly whither they could our hope was that the victorious black kenda would be too exhausted to follow them across the plain to the distant mountains it was a dreadful determination but we had no choice what of my wife ragnall asked hoarsely while the temple stands she must remain in the temple replied harut when all is lost if i have fallen do you white lord go to the sanctuary with those who remain and take her and the ivory child and flee after the others only i lay this charge on you under pain of the curse of heaven that you do not suffer the ivory child to fall into the hands of the black kenda first you must burn it with fire or grind it to dust with stones moreover i give this command to all in case of the priests in charge of it should fail me that they set flame to the brushwood that is built upon the stacks of corn so that after all those of our enemies who escape may die of famine instantly and without murmuring for never did i see more perfect discipline than that which prevailed among these poor people the orders given by harut who in addition to his office as head priest was a kind of president of what was in fact a republic were put in the way of execution 
Company by company the men appointed to escort the women and children departed through the gateway of the second court, each company turning in the gateway to salute us who remained, by raising their spears, till all were gone. Then we, the three hundred and fifty who were left, marshalled ourselves as the Greeks may have done in the pass of Thermopylae. First stood I and my rifleman, to whom all the remaining ammunition was served out. It amounted to eight rounds per man. Then ranged across the court in four lines came the spearmen armed with lances and swords under the immediate command of Harut. Behind these, near the gate of the second court, so that at the last they might attempt the rescue of the priestess, were fifty picked men, captained by Ragnall, who, I forgot to say, was wounded in two places, though not badly, having received a spear-thrust in the left shoulder and a sword-cut to the left thigh during his desperate defence of the entrenchment. By the time that all was ready and every man had been given to drink from the great jars of water which stood along the walls, the massive wooden doors began to burn through, though this did not happen for quite half an hour after the enemy had begun to attempt to fire them. They fell at length beneath the battering of poles, leaving only the mound of earth and stones which we had piled up in the gateway after the closing of the doors. This the black kender, who had raked out the burning embers, set themselves to dig away with hands and sticks and spears, a task that was made very difficult to them by about a score of our people who stabbed at them with their long lances, or dashed them down with stones, killing and disabling many but always the dead and wounded were dragged off while others took their places, so that at last the gateway was practically cleared. Then I called back the spearmen who passed into the ranks behind us, and made ready to play my part. I had not long to wait. With a rush and a roar a great company of the Black Kender charged at the gateway. Just as they began to emerge into the court I gave the word to fire, sending fifty Snyder bullets tearing into them from a distance of a few yards. They fell in a heap. They fell like corn before the scythe. Not a man won through. Quickly we reloaded and waited for the next rush. In due course it came, and the dreadful scene repeated itself. Now the gateway and the tunnel beyond were so choked with fallen men that the enemy must drag these out before they could charge any more. It was done under the fire of myself, Hans, and a few picked shots. Somehow it was done. Once more they charged, and once more were mown down. So it went on till our last cartridge was spent, for never did I see more magnificent courage than was shown by those black kender in face of terrific loss. Then my people threw aside their useless rifles, and arming themselves with spears and swords fell back to rest, leaving Harut and his company to take their place. For half an hour or more raged that awful struggle, since the spot being so narrow, charge as they would, the black kender could not win through the spears of despairing warriors, defending their lives and the sanctuary of their god nor, the encircling cliffs being so sheer, could they get round by any other way. At length the enemy drew back as though defeated, giving us time to drag aside our dead and wounded and drink more water, for the heat in the place was now overwhelming. We hoped against hope that they had given up the attack, 
but this was far from the case. They were but making a new plan. Suddenly in the gateway there appeared the huge bulk of the elephant Jana, rushing forward at speed and being urged on by men who pricked it with spears behind. It swept through the defenders as though they were but dry grass, battering those in front of it with its great trunk from which swung the iron balls that crushed all on whom they fell, and paying no more heed to the lance thrusts than it might have done to the bites of gnats. On it came, trumpeting and trampling, and after it in a flood flowed the black kender, upon whom our spearmen flung themselves from either side. At the time I, followed by Hans, was just returning from speaking with Ragnall at the gate of the second court. A little before I had retired exhausted from the fierce and fearful fighting, thereon he took my place and repelled several of the Black Kender charges, including the last. In this fray he received a further injury, a knock on the head from a stick or stone which stunned him for a few minutes whereon some of our people had carried him off and set him on the ground with his back against one of the pillars of the second gate. Being told that he was hurt, I ran to see what was the matter. Finding to my joy that it was nothing very serious, I was hurrying up to the front again when I looked up and saw that devil Jana charging straight towards me, the throng of armed men parting on each side of him, as rough water does before the leaping prow of a storm-driven ship. To tell the truth, although I was never fond of unnecessary risks, I rejoiced at the sight. Not even all the excitement of that hideous and prolonged battle had obliterated from my mind the burning sense of shame at the exhibition which I had made of myself by missing this beast with four barrels at forty yards. Now, I thought to myself with a kind of exultant thrill, now, Jana, I will wipe out both my disgrace and you. This time there shall be no mistake, or if there is, let it be my last. On thundered Jana, whirling the iron balls among the soldiers who fled to right and left, leaving a clear path between him and me. To make quite sure of things, for I was trembling a little with fatigue and somewhat sick from the continuous sight of bloodshed, I knelt down upon my right knee, using the other as a prop for my left elbow, and since I could not make certain of a headshot because of the continual whirling of the huge trunk, got the sight of my big game rifle dead on to the beast where the throat joins the chest. I hoped that the heavy conical bullet would either pierce through to the spine or cut one of the large arteries in the neck, or at least that the tremendous shock of its impact would bring him down. At about twenty paces I fired and hit, not Jana, but the lame priest who was fulfilling the office of Mahout, perched upon his shoulders many feet above the point at which I had aimed. Yes, I hit him in the head, which was shattered like an eggshell so that he fell lifeless to the ground. In perfect desperation, again I aimed, and fired when Jana was not more than thirty feet away. This time the bullet must have gone wide to the left, for I saw a chip fly from the end of the animal's broken and deformed tusk, which stuck out in that direction several feet clear of its side. Then I gave up all hope. There was no time to gain my feet and escape. Indeed, I did not wish to do so who felt that there are some failures which can only be absolved by death. I just knelt there, waiting for the end. 
In an instant the giant creature was almost over me. I remember looking up at it and thinking in a queer sort of way, perhaps it was some ancestral memory, that I was a little ape-child about to be slain by a primordial elephant, thrice as big as any that now inhabit the earth. Then something appeared to happen which I only repeat to show how, at such moments, absurd and impossible things seem real to us. The reader may remember the strange dream which Hans had related to me that morning. One incident of this fantasy was that he had met the spirit of the Zulu lady Mamina, whom I knew in bygone years, and that she bade him tell me she would be with me in the battle, and that I was to look for her when death drew near to me, and Jana thundered on, for then, perchance, I should see her. Well, no doubt, in some lightning flash of thought, the memory of these words occurred to me at this juncture, with the ridiculous result that my subjective intelligence, if that is the right term, actually created the scene which they described, as clearly, or perhaps more clearly than ever I saw anything else in my life, I appeared to behold the beautiful Mamina, in her fur cloak and her blue beads, standing between Jana and myself with her arms folded upon her breast, and looking exactly as she did in the tremendous moment of her death before King Panda. I even noted how the faint breeze stirred a loose end of her outspread hair, and how the sunlight caught a particular point of a copper bangle on her upper arm. So she stood, or rather seemed to stand quite still. And as it happened, at that moment the giant Jana, either because something had frightened him, or perhaps owning to the shock of my bullet striking upon his tusk, having jarred the brain, suddenly pulled up sliding along a little with all his four feet together, till I thought he was going to sit down like a performing elephant. Then it appeared to me as though Mamina turned round very slowly, bent towards me, whispering something which I could not hear, although her lips moved, looked at me sweetly with those wonderful eyes of hers, and vanished away. A fraction of a second later all this vision had gone, and something that was no vision took its place. Jana had recovered himself, and was at me again with open mouth and lifted trunk. I heard a Dutch curse, and saw a little yellow form, saw Hans, for it was he, thrust the barrels of my second elephant gun almost into that red cave of a mouth, which however they could not reach, and fire first one barrel, and then the other. Another moment, and the mighty trunk had wrapped itself about Hans and hurled him through the air to fall on to his head and arms thirty or forty feet away. Jana staggered as though he too were about to fall, recovered himself, swerved to the right, perhaps to follow Hans, stumbled on a few paces, missing me altogether, then again came to a standstill. I wriggled myself round, and, seated on the pavement of the court, watched what followed, and glad am I that I was able to do so, for never shall I behold such another scene. First I saw Ragnall run up with a rifle and fire two barrels at the brute's head, of which he took no notice whatsoever. Then I saw his wife, who in this land was known as the guardian of the child, issuing from the portals of the second court, dressed in her goddess robes, wearing the cap of a bird's feathers, attended by the two priestesses, also dressed as goddesses, as we had seen her on the morning of sacrifice, and holding in front of her the statue of the ivory child. On she came quite quietly, 
her wide, empty eyes fixed upon Jana. As she advanced, the monster seemed to grow uneasy. Turning his head, he lifted his trunk and thrust it along his back until it gripped the ankle of the King Simba, who all this while was seated there in his chair, making no movement. With a slow, steady pull, he dragged Simba from the chair, so that he fell upon the ground near his left foreleg. Next, very composedly, he wound his trunk about the body of the helpless man, whose horrified eyes I can see to this day, and began to whirl him round and round in the air, gently at first, but with a motion that grew ever more rapid, until the bright chains on the victim's breast flashed in the sunlight like a silver wheel. Then he hurled him to the ground, where the poor king lay like a mere shattered pulp that had been human. Now the priestess was standing in front of the beast-god, apparently quite without fear, though her two attendants had fallen back. Ragnall sprang forward as though to drag her away, but a dozen men leapt on to him and held him fast, either to save his life or for some secret reason of their own which I never learned. Jana looked down at her, and she looked up at Jana. Then he screamed furiously, and, shooting out his trunk, snatched the ivory child from her hands, whirled it round as he had whirled Simba, and at last dashed it to the stone pavement as he had dashed Simba, so that its substance, grown brittle on the passage of the ages, shattered into ten thousand fragments. At this sight a great groan went up from the men of the White Kendah. The women dressed as goddesses shrieked and tore their robes, and Harut, who stood near, fell down in a fit or faint. Once more Jana screamed, then slowly he knelt down, beat his trunk and the clattering metal balls upon the ground thrice, as though he were making obeisance to the beautiful priestess who stood before him, shivered throughout his mighty bulk, and rolled over, dead. The fighting ceased. The black kender, who all this while had been pressing into the court of the temple, saw and stood stupefied. It was as though, in the presence of events to them so pregnant and terrible, men could no longer lift their swords in war. A voice called, The god is dead! The king is dead! Jana has slain Simba, and has himself been slain! Shattered is the child! Spilt is the blood of Jana! Fly, people of the Black Kender, fly, for the gods are dead, and your land is a land of ghosts. From every side this wail echoed, Fly, people of the Black Kender, for the gods are dead. They turned, they sped away like shadows, carrying their wounded with them, nor did any attempt to stay them. Thirty minutes later, save for some desperately hurt or dying men, not one of them was left in the temple or the pass beyond. They had all gone, leaving none but the dead behind them. The fight was finished. The fight that had seemed lost was won. I dragged myself from the ground. As I gained my tottering feet, for now that all was over, I felt as if I were made of running water. I saw the men who held Ragnall loose their grip of him. He sprang to where his wife was and stood before her as though confused, much as Jana had stood, Jana against whose head he rested, his left hand holding to the brute's gigantic tusk, for I think that he was also weak with toil, terror, loss of blood, and emotion. Luna, 
he gasped. Luna! Leaning on the shoulder of a Kenda man, I drew nearer to see what passed between them, for my curiosity overcame my faintness. For quite a long while she stared at him, till suddenly her eyes began to change. It was as though a soul were arising in their emptiness, as the moon arises in the quiet evening sky, giving them light and life. At length she spoke, in a slow, hesitating voice, the tones of which I remember well enough, saying, Oh, George, that dreadful brute! And she pointed to the dead elephant. Has killed our baby. Look at it, look at it. We must be everything to each other now, dear, as we were before it came, unless God sends us another. Then she burst into a flood of weeping and fell into his arms, after which I turned away. So, to their honour be it said, did the Kenda, leaving the pair alone behind the bulk of dead Jana. Here I may state two things. First, that Lady Ragnall, whose bodily health had remained perfect throughout, entirely recovered her reason from that moment. It was as though on the shattering of the ivory child some spell had been lifted off her. What this spell may have been I am quite unable to explain, but I presume that in a dim and unknown way she connected this effigy with her own lost infant, and that while she held and tended it her intellect remained in abeyance. If so, she must have connected its destruction with the death of her own child, which, strangely enough, it will be remembered, was likewise killed by an elephant. The first death that occurred in her presence took away her reason. The second seeming death, which also occurred in her presence, brought it back again. Secondly, from the moment of the destruction of her boy in the streets of the English country town to that of the shattering of the ivory child in Central Africa, her memory was an utter blank, with one exception. This exception was a dream which a few days later she narrated to Ragnall in my presence. That dream was that she had seen him and Savage sleeping together in a native house one night, in view of a certain incident recorded in this history. I leave the reader to draw his own conclusions as to this curious incident. I have none to offer, or if I have, I prefer to keep them to myself. Leaving Ragnall and his wife, I staggered off to look for Hans, and found him lying senseless near the north wall of the temple. Evidently he was beyond human help, for Jana seemed to have crushed most of his ribs in his iron trunk. We carried him to one of the priest's cells, and there I watched him till the end, which came at sundown. Before he died, he became quite conscious and talked with me a good deal. "'Don't grieve about missing Jana, Bas,' he said, "'for it wasn't you who missed him, but some devil that turned your bullets. You see, Bas, he was bewitched against you white men.' When you look at him closely, you will find that the Lord Agiza missed him also. Strange as it may seem, this proved to be the case. And when you managed to hit the tip of his tusk with the last ball the magic was wearing off him, that's all. But, Bas, those black Kenda wizards forgot to bewitch him against the little yellow man, of whom they took no account. So I hit him sure enough every time I fired at him, and I hope he liked the taste of my bullets in that great mouth of his. He knew who had sent them there very well. That's why he left you alone and made for me, as I had hoped he would. 
Oh, Baas, I die happy, quite happy, since I have killed Jonna and he caught me and not you, me who was nearly finished anyhow. For Baas, though I didn't say anything about it, a thrown spear struck my groin when I went down among the Black Kendah this morning. It was only a small cut which bled little, but as the fighting went on something gave way, and my inside began to come through it, though I tied it up with a bit of cloth, which of course means death in a day or two. Subsequent examination showed me that Hans's story of this wound was perfectly true. He could not have lived for very long. Baas, he went on after a pause, no doubt I shall meet that Zulu lady Mamina to-night. Tell me, is she really entitled to the royal salute? Because if not, when I am as much a spook as she is, I will not give it to her again. She never gave me my titles, which are good ones in their way. So why should I give her the baite, unless it is hers by right of blood, although I am only a little yellow dog, as she chose to call me? As this ridiculous point seemed to weigh upon his mind, I told him that Mamina was not even of royal blood, and in no wise entitled to the salute of kings. Ah, he said with a feeble grin, then now I shall know how to deal with her, especially she cannot pretend that I did not play my part in the battle as she bade me do. Did you see anything of her when Jonna charged, boss? Because I thought I did. I seemed to see something, but no doubt it was only a fancy. A fancy? Explain to me, boss, where truths end and fancies begin, and whether what we think are fancies are not sometimes the real truths. Once or twice I have thought so of late, boss. I could not answer this riddle, so instead I gave him some water which he asked for, and he continued, Boss, have you any messages for the two shining ones, for her whose name is Holy, and her sister, and for the child of her whose name is Holy, the Missy Marie, and for your reverend father, the predicant? If so, tell it quickly, before my head grows too empty to hold the words. I will confess, however foolish it may seem, that I gave him certain messages, but what they were I shall not write down. Let them remain secret between me and him, yes, between me and him, and perhaps those to whom they were to be delivered. For after all, in his own words, who can know exactly where fancies end and truth begin, and whether at times fancies are not the veritable truths in this universal mystery of which the individual life of each of us is so small a part? Hans repeated what had spoken to him word for word as a native does, repeated it twice over, after which he said he knew it by heart, and remained silent for a long while. Then he asked me to lift him up in the doorway of the cell so that he might look at the sun setting for the last time. For Bas, he added, I think I am going far beyond the sun. He stared at it for a while, remarking that from the look of the sky there should be fine weather coming which will be good for your journey towards the black water, Bass, with all that ivory to carry. I answered that perhaps I should never get the ivory from the graveyard of the elephants, as the black kender might prevent this. No, Bass, he replied. Now that Jonna is dead, the black kender will go away. I know it. I know it. Then he wandered for a space, speaking of sundry adventures we had shared together, till quite before the last indeed, when his mind returned to him. Boss, he said, did not the Captain Mavovo name me Light in Darkness? 
and is not that my name. When you two enter the darkness, look for that light. It will be shining very close to you. He only spoke once more. His words were, Bas, I understand now what your reverend father the predicant meant when he spoke to me about love last night. It had nothing to do with women, Bas, at least not much. It was something a great deal bigger, Bas, something as big as what I feel for you. Then Hans died with a smile on his wrinkled face. I wept. End of chapter 20